Good morning, all. Wonderful to have you with us here at church at Summer Hill, uh, particularly if you're in the building, but just as much really for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we're sorry if you're not able to be with us. Uh, we do hope that if you're unwell, you get better soon. Uh, later on in the service, uh, we'll put up on the screen a connection card, and we'd love to hear from you particularly if you're watching us uh, online. Uh, we'd love to know uh, that you are with us this morning. Uh, it'd be great if you opened up to Genesis chapter 27. Uh, this morning, we're going to be working through um, probably one of the most um, contentious uh, little moments and episodes in Jacob's life. Uh, in fact, perhaps in the whole um, uh, life and ministry of uh, Israel, uh, indeed. Uh, and in fact, some of what will play out from this event, we won't see uh, until the week next week and the week after that. So it's going to be a story that has uh, ongoing uh, consequences. Well, I wonder if you're familiar with the Palmer grab reflex or grasping reflex. Uh, it's an involuntary reflex that's found particularly in human infants as well as in the infants of other primate species as well. This, this grasping kind of um, reflex uh, is when an object, maybe like an adult's finger, is placed in the palm of a child. The infant's fingers just reflexively grasp whatever object has been placed there on the palm. It's triggered by a spinal reflex. Um, it's so instinctive that the, the message doesn't even have to go to the brain uh, before the child acts and just grasps. Uh, it just goes to the spinal cord and sends back the message to grasp and hold on tight. Um, the child even can exhibit this tendency to grasp within it when it's in the womb. Even from about 16 weeks old at the earliest, uh, there are signs of this tendency of the child to be able to grasp anything that lands in its palm. Uh, this grasping reflex uh, isn't all that discerning, um, and you might, have no, you might have discovered this if you've been holding a child uh, for any point, if a nose gets in the way or an ear or some hair, they can just as easily quickly reach out and grasp that and hold on for dear life without even perhaps being aware of what it is that they're doing. And such grasping, metaphorically speaking, can be an enduring instinct also for those who are newly born into God's own household, into God's family. This instinctive human tendency to grasp is a theme that repeats itself throughout the life of Jacob, throughout Genesis's account of the origin of Israel, of God's people, uh, who were named ultimately after Jacob. Uh, last week, you might recall how Isaac's wife, Rebecca, had had two sons who were causing a lot of grief as they wrestled within her womb a sign of what was going to mark their ongoing relationship with each other. The younger son, Jacob, born grasping, you might remember, after the heel of the older son, Esau, who was born before him. And that's a pattern. This grasping, struggling, wrestling pattern is one that's played out well into adulthood for these two. As the younger son, Jacob, grasps after the honoured place of firstborn son, you might remember from last week, and the elder son, the elder reckless son Esau, despises his honoured place in the family and just willingly and scandalously really trades his honest place, his honoured place as firstborn just for a quick feed, for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, of course, despite Esau's willingness to swear a binding agreement, a, a lead to legally confirm this reckless trade of his with an oath that he would give Jacob the position of firstborn if he just got some of the stew, the wrestling between the two brothers doesn't stop there. It continues. This grasping after the honoured place in God's family 
isn't even close to being done with yet. And in fact, in today's passage, we see the wrestling between these two brothers, between Jacob and Esau, actually spilling out to envelop the whole family dynamic, the whole way in which this family engages and relates with one another. Have a look with me at our opening section from the chapter, uh, chapter 27. I'll read it again for us, verses 1 to 11. We read, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for his elder son Esau and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, Listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Uh, Last week, back in chapter 25, you might remember that Isaac had favoured Esau, the older brother, simply because, not because he was the firstborn, just simply because he tasted the kind of food that Isaac Isaac liked to eat. That was it, as far as what the Scriptures tell us about Isaac's affection for Esau. Rebekah, though, we're told, favoured Jacob as the one who the Lord God himself had declared that he would work through. And precisely the same dynamic is going on again in today's passage. Did you notice how that was playing out? Isaac's favour is focused exclusively upon the son who satisfies his own cravings. Uh, Just as Esau pleaded last week with Jacob, you know, feed me now, I'm about to die. Isaac's showing the same kind of melodrama in today's passage. He said, I don't know when I'm going to die. It could be any moment. Go and get the food for me and bring it back. Yeah, after this moment, Isaac goes on to live another 80 years. It's It's a little bit hard to take it too seriously that he was on death's door. Get me the food I want. It's also curious that Isaac seeks to carry out this blessing in secret, without involving the rest of the household at all. Even Rebecca, she has to listen in and overhear the plan that is being hatched between Isaac and Esau. Now, these kind of significant moments in family life were never carried out in secret. If you look at the way in which these blessing moments happened, both before and after this one in the book of Genesis... They're done in the presence of a family with witnesses. For the future of the whole family, ultimately, is bound up in the blessing of the favoured son. It's not a private, secret thing that would normally be carried out. Now, we're not told explicitly the precise reason for Isaac's dubious secrecy in this particular moment. Did he know about and maybe even wish to subvert God's stated choice of the younger son, Jacob? There are some clues later on in the passage that maybe that's at least at the back of his mind. 
Was this a covert way to rectify Esau's foolhardy decision to legally trade away his right to the blessing of the firstborn son? Was it just that Isaac wanted to ensure a steady supply of wild stew from Esau for however many days of life remained to him? It could have been any of them, maybe all of them. And Esau is certainly complicit here as well. See, there's no mention from Esau of how he had traded away his honoured position as firstborn son and with it his right to be blessed. He never speaks up about that, does he? doesn't mention to Isaac, oh, you know, Dad, actually, I've already had mine, I had lentil stew. Uh, Jacob's the guy you should be talking to. In contrast, Rebecca recognises that the blessing should be focused not upon the son who's favouring Isaac's grumbling stomach, but upon the son whom the Lord himself had declared he would favour. It's interesting to note, when Rebecca is reporting to Jacob what Isaac is scheming, Isaac never mentions the Lord in his plans with Esau, but Rebecca mentions, Isaac's going to bless your brother in the presence of the Lord. Whatever else is messed up going on in, in Rebecca's head, she at least understands that this has got a much greater significance than just some dealings between Esau and Isaac. Rebecca is the only one who seems willing to recognise that God himself has actually staked a claim in what happens within this family circle, this family unit. Now, even so, it's, it's hard not to be at least a little bit unsettled by the deceptive manner in which Rebecca goes about taking matters into her own hands, is it? Uh, kind of like the Palmer grasp reflex. She sees an opportunity and she just seems to instinctively grab it without even stopping to think, without stopping to even reflect. It's an instinct. And perhaps you know something of that instinct to grasp after an opportunity, maybe without having stopped to pause and reflect it all the way through. When it looks like God is passing up a perfectly good opportunity to secure something good for us, Isn't it true that we so often just lose our nerve and instinctively grasp after those things that we fear God might overlook and fail to deliver to us? If God's not going to take the opportunity, I'm going to grasp and take it for myself. That's the kind of dynamic that's going on in Rebecca's thinking here. In the case of Rebecca, the consequences, though, of her scheming aren't going to take long to manifest themselves in a deepening family trauma. Uh, The only one who seems at all aware of how terribly wrong this could all go, seems to be Jacob. I wonder if you notice that in verses 11 to 13. Have a look there with me, verse 11 to 13. Rebecca's just outlined her plan for Jacob. And Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Without wanting to excuse at all Jacob's complicity in Rebecca's deceptive scheming here, it is striking that at no point in the book of Genesis does Jacob himself initiate any deception. He absolutely jumps on board here and gets right on into it, as we'll see in a moment. But there's actually no point at which Jacob himself dreams up or initiates such deception. 
while we might understandably and rightly doubt that Jacob is really motivated by any high-minded moral principles, the truth is that Jacob alone can see that things could go very wrong with this plan. And in the years ahead, Jacob is actually going to prove himself to be a man, perhaps of surprising honesty and integrity, even when it is decidedly not to his own advantage. So it's an unexpected and remarkable character trait that we'll see in coming weeks. Even so, here Jacob listens to the voice of his mother and indeed plays out his mother's deceptive plan right down to the details. Although, um, there is one hiccup in the plan, I wonder if you noticed it uh, as it played out, and it moves Jacob to kind of improvise a little bit of his own deception. Uh, Have a look with me at verses 19 and 20. Uh, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asks his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Even in these little improvised words of deception from Jacob, I think Jacob is betraying an awareness of who he should have been depending on for success. It's a deep and pretty bitter irony. This is the one moment, perhaps more than any other, when Jacob is clearly not depending upon the Lord God for success. In fact, it's at this moment that he's decided to go with his own grasping instead of trusting that God would deliver to him what he had promised. Deep and sad irony at that moment. Now, Rachel's, uh, uh, sorry, Rebecca's um, deceptive plan and Jacob's own execution of it are ultimately successful. Jacob does secure his father's blessing as the thing plays out. And I wonder if you noticed, as we read it earlier this, uh, this morning, as, um, as we read it earlier from uh, the, the Bible readings, that the blessing that Isaac mistakenly thinks he is pronouncing over Esau is actually an amped-up version of the prophecy that God had already made about Jacob the week before. Have a look with me up there on the screen, we'll see it there. God had declared back in chapter 25, he declared to Rebekah that the elder son will serve the younger. And it's as if Isaac actually knows, maybe he has got this inkling of what God has spoken to Rebekah about Jacob, because he amps up a counter-blessing for Esau in response. Have a read of verse 29. Uh, In the middle of uh, verse 29, Isaac blesses, he thinks he's blessing Esau, he's actually blessing Jacob, and he says, be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. Who could he be speaking about? Seems pretty targeted at Jacob, doesn't it? May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Whether intentionally or not, Isaac is attempting to bless Esau with an amped up, supercharged, intensified version of the very words that God himself had spoken previously about Jacob. Now, if Isaac imagines that he's been able to counter God's earlier blessing, if Isaac imagines that he's been able to pull the wool over Rebekah and Jacob's eyes, the awful reality reveals itself very soon that the reverse has been true, when Esau returns too late with his wild game stew. Have a look with me at how this plays out uh, as Jacob and Rebekah's deception is exposed in verse 33. Uh, Esau returns 
Uh, And upon realizing that they've been duped, we read verse 33, Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came and deceitfully took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken away my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And if we read down, we'll see this same plea again in verse 38. Esau said to his father, do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Do you only have one blessing for me, my father? Uh, There are two particular things that I reckon we should notice about Esau's complaint at this point in the tragedy. The first is that Isaac, all along, had been scheming to bless Esau with absolutely everything that Isaac possessed. He'd given all of it in the first blessing. There was no other blessing left over. Isaac's favoritism at this point is unprecedented. Even though the, fir- he first, um, the firstborn son typically would receive a double share, a larger share, there's always a blessing that would also be pronounced upon the other children as well. We'll see this when Isaac blesses his own children much later on in the book of Genesis. But here Isaac has dumped all of it on who he thinks is Esau. Isaac's one-eyed, covert attempt to bless his favourite son with absolutely everything has backfired in spectacular fashion, leaving Esau with nothing left to receive. Secondly, note Esau's complaint there in verse 36. He says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Now, this isn't a comment explicitly about Jacob's deceptiveness. As I mentioned last week, Jacob's name doesn't actually mean deceiver, but rather he who grasps, or he who grasps the heel. Jacob's greatest character failing, as we'll see throughout several more chapters yet, is not deceptiveness, although he is guilty of that here. Freed from his mother's influence, Jacob, as I mentioned, goes on to endure incredible hardship and injustice with remarkable integrity, not deceiving others when he easily could have. Rather, Jacob's Achilles heel, Jacob's besetting sin, a sin that God will have to work slowly and painfully to free Jacob from, is his instinctive grasping after God's blessings in his own strength. That's Jacob's key failing, that he grasps after what God has promised in his own strength, by his own cleverness, by his own resources. Perhaps this tendency to instinctively grasp God's blessings in our own strength, rather than patiently waiting upon God to prove himself faithful to his promises, to deliver on what he has promised, perhaps that tendency to grasp is something that even we ourselves are familiar with. Like Jacob, we grasp after that which we fear God might never come through on delivering to us. Like Jacob, we have a tendency to grasp after those things that God seems inexplicably to be holding back from us. 
Like Jacob, we grasp because our current circumstances seem to prove in our own way of thinking that God is unlikely to ever deliver on the good things that we were hoping to receive from his hand. And so we instinctively grasp after it ourselves, not waiting for him to deliver. Where might we perceive that grasping tendency in ourselves? Is what this story, I think, does provoke us to reflect upon. Maybe churches might find themselves instinctively grasping after any opportunity to gain influence with our surrounding culture, influence and credibility with our surrounding culture. But in so doing, we find ourselves compromising some aspect of Christian faithfulness and practice that should set us apart as God's distinctive people. It's a similar dynamic to Jacob's failing in this passage. Perhaps we fear that embracing sexual restraint and holiness will needlessly deny ourselves the experience of relational fulfillment. And so instead we grasp the most promising opportunity for intimacy that presents itself to us, gambling that our moral compromise in this moment might go unnoticed long enough to get ourselves back on track later on. That's the kind of grasping that Jacob is giving himself to in this moment. Perhaps we genuinely long to arouse curiosity about Jesus in the life of a a friend or a family member who doesn't know Jesus yet, yet we become so frustrated with some hard teaching of Jesus that seems insurmountable to this friend or family member coming to faith, and so we grasp after any chance to affirm their interest in spiritual things, but in so doing, we discover that we release our hold on some key truth that God has spoken about himself all in an attempt to grasp after even something as good as a brother or a sister, a family member, a friend, having an opportunity to welcome Jesus. Like Rebecca and Jacob along with her, we often instinctively grasp for control of our own futures, gambling that we can chart the course ahead for ourselves with greater confidence that God himself is able to do. It's a compromise that Isaac and Esau were not innocent of either. They were grasping in their own measure to try and get things to pan out the way they thought best as well. If there ever was anyone who did have good cause to grasp after an honoured place in God's family, it would have been the Lord Jesus, of course, the son whom God declared he was perfectly pleased with but grasping, but seeking after his own advantage was the one thing that the Lord Jesus himself never resorted to. I've got up there on the screen a little section from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. This um, uh, little section is from an older version of the NIV. Uh, My apologies, but it's there on the screen. Uh, There, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, we read of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Far more than was ever true of Jacob, the Lord Jesus could rightly have, excuse me, could rightly have claimed a firstborn share in God's honour and glory in his status. Yet instead of grasping after that honour that was rightly his, 
Instead of grasping after that, which would have been to his own advantage, Jesus humbly endured even the indignity of death on a cross, confident that God wouldn't fail to deliver on the promises that he had spoken to him. And Jesus' refusal to grasp, but instead to entrust himself to God's good timing, well, that paid off spectacularly, didn't it? Have a look at some of the verses that follow. We read that, therefore, God exalted him, exalted Christ, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Can you see the difference between the way in which Jacob and Christ related to God's promises? Jesus' refusal to grasp, but instead entrust himself to God's good timing, pays off spectacularly. Despite all the appearances, God proved himself faithful to the words he had spoken to his favoured son, Jesus. And Jesus trusted the word of the Lord, not grasping in the way in which Jacob himself had given in to doing. Uh, we began this morning, I was reflecting on the Palmer grasp reflex, this newborn reflex, uh, a reflex that comes about in a child before they've learned to process what they're even actually grasping after. Uh, for, the, for a child, for an infant, it really only usually lasts for maybe the first two or six months. It's, a, it's an instinctive grasping reflex that they will tend to quickly grow out of. It usually doesn't last after all that long. It certainly doesn't last into adulthood. It'd be a little bit disturbing if it did, wouldn't it? If you were in, engaging in conversation with friends or at work with people who would just randomly, reflectively grasp or grab after whatever caught their interest or their attention. And grasping is equally an anxious spiritual tendency that we need to grow out of as members of God's own family and household. And that only begins to happen as our trust deepens in God's faithfulness to deliver on all the promises that He has spoken to us. Friends, in the Lord Jesus, we have an older brother who has shown us just how faithful our Father is to deliver on His promises. We can rest in God's capacity and faithfulness to deliver. Grasping doesn't need to be our own instinctive reflex. Our place in God's family is far more secure than that. Let's pray that that confidence would be ours. Dearest Father, we thank you for the way in which you have promised to deliver good for us, your children. Thank you for your promises that you're attentive to us, that you hear us, that you answer our prayers, that in the Lord Jesus you have guaranteed for us every spiritual blessing that we could imagine. And yet, Father, we confess that often we still instinctively grasp after that which we fear you might not deliver on, after those good things we fear you have forgotten or simply neglected to deliver to us. Father, forgive us for that. Deepen our confidence in you as a God who is faithful to deliver all the things, all the good that you have promised us, that we might rest in your faithfulness as members of your own household. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.